Well, if you have a Bible, please make your way to Acts chapter 1 this morning. Acts chapter 1. Next week, we are beginning a new series on the core values of Woodside Bible Church. It will be an eight-week series leading right up to Good Friday and Easter. Really excited about it. It's going to be fantastic. But this weekend was a one-off where they gave the campus pastors the choice to preach on whatever we wanted. So you guys get what I want to talk about today. And what that means is I felt like we couldn't talk about core values if we didn't understand our core purpose. And so I wanted to talk about that today from Acts chapter 1. And God just confirmed to me that this is a text he wanted to communicate to all of us today. And so that is where we will be. And I'm looking forward to just unpacking all of this for you today. You guys ready to kind of put on, put on the word a little bit today and just kind of hear and process with me? I hope so. I'm going to go pretty deep today. Uh, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to get after this a little bit. And so if you like taking notes, if you like to really kind of see the word kind of just processed verse by verse, that's what we're going to do for a little while. And we're going to look at these first 11 verses and see what it has for us. This is something that God has certainly brought to my heart And I hope that you're moved by it as I have been this week. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John the Baptist, or for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I've been reading a book recently entitled Spirit-Empowered Mission, written by a friend of mine named Artaxerdia. Some of what I will share as we walk through this text are thoughts he wrote that have challenged me. And the challenge started when I read a very provocative question, and I want to contextualize that question for all of us here this morning. Here it is. If you set out to discover the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ by exclusively observing evangelical Christian congregations in the metro Detroit area, hundreds of churches, perhaps thousands, would your findings be clear and well-defined or would they be inconsistent and confused? 
Let me ask you the question once again. If you set out to discover the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ by exclusively observing evangelical churches in the metro Detroit area, would your findings be clear and well-defined or would they be inconsistent and confused? The question is not focused on all the things the church should be doing. Things like worship services, family ministries, discipleship opportunities, taking care of the needs of the people within the church. The question is asking, what is our primary mission? What is the primary thing we are supposed to be doing when we leave this gathering, when we leave this building? This question is not also talking about everything we are supposed to be doing as Christian individuals. We are commanded to do all kinds of different things. To love our neighbors as ourselves, to honor our parents, to love our wives, to respect our husbands, to uh, deal with our kids in a proper way. We're, we're called to pray for one another, to do many, many different commands that are focused on the individual. But it would be like this. If I am commanded not to provo- provoke my children to anger, Ephesians chapter 6, then does that mean it is the church's primary mission not to provoke my kids to anger? No. So we can't take every command and make it the primary mission. That's a confusion of categories. Even though there's some of you in this room, I wish you would provoke my kids to anger so that I wouldn't have to do it. Um, Because sometimes they drive me nuts. But, But that's beside the point. You kind of see the mistaken categories here. The question is asking, what have we been commissioned to do as a church by our head pastor, by our chief shepherd by Jesus Christ. We can't make the mistake of thinking every command given to the individual Christian is also central to the mission of the church. Mission is an important word. Uh, It communicates purpose. It's really become a buzzword in Christian circles. It's a word that started to mean a whole lot to me back in 2010 or so when we started transforming Woodside Bible Church and what we did through discipleship, something called small groups, into something we called neighborhood groups, which we sometimes call missional communities. It's a buzzword all over the place. It's on the cover of a ton of new book titles. People are writing about it. Dissertations by pastors are being written on this topic. Conference after conference focusing on mission. Blog after blog. It's all over the place. And so in the church, we talk about being a missional church. We talk about a church as a family on mission. We talk about neighborhood groups as missional communities. We talk about living on mission. We talk about missional practices, missional habits, missional preaching. The history, though, of all this is fascinating because it makes me ask the question, why the sudden emphasis on all this mission? Why do we use that word so much? Why is it talked about so much? The history is fascinating and involved, but suffice it to say that part of the unintended consequences of being considered a Christian society or a Christian-friendly society in our history and a Christian uh, society that, that was rooted on Christian principles over time, was that churches started believing that missions mostly had to do with missionaries. And if you weren't a missionary, then missions wasn't much of a priority since we lived generally in a Christian nation. Well, with the rise of postmodernism, with the rise of relativism, with the rise of secularism in our society, where people now say there is no grand narrative that defines people. 
Everybody has a right to their own reality. Organized religion is dangerous because religion discriminates against people. Question everything because there is no such thing as absolutes. There's no absolute truth except for the truth that other people's truth is true for them. That's the only absolute. There's no absolute morality except for the one golden rule. Don't hurt anybody else. There's no absolutes when it comes to gender, marriage, or even when life begins because we have evolved as a society. We've improved over generations. We understand things that people who came before did not understand. And all of a sudden, the Christian culture turned towards a post-Christian culture and now towards a anti-Christian culture. So missions became a thing in the evangelical church again because now the church has a great awareness of how far away the culture is from Christ. Are you tracking with me so far? But in the process, I fear that everything has now become our mission. The church's primary mission is social justice. Let's make our communities better. The church's primary mission is broken families. Let's make families stronger. The church's primary mission is loving your neighbor. Make your neighborhoods friendlier. But as the Scottish missionary Stephen Neal said in the 1950s, if everything is mission, nothing is mission. If everything is mission, nothing is mission. The commission Jesus gave us is underprioritized at best, and at worst, not prioritized at all. The church ends up being preoccupied with other things. And by the way, all these things are good things. (laughs) To care about families, that's a good thing. To care about your neighbors, that's a good thing. To get involved in social justice issues, that's a good thing. To serve the needy, this is a good thing. But we get preoccupied with other good things, godly things, but not the primary thing. So let me ask you again. If you set out to discover the primary mission of the church of Jesus Christ by observing evangelical congregations in Metro Detroit, would your findings be clear and well-defined or would they be inconsistent and confused? Luke's gospel had a sequel. It's the book of Acts. And Acts gives us the answer that is anything but ambiguous. Jesus is not confused on our mission. It's anything but ambiguous. It's abundantly clear. And this is what we must be committed to at Woodside Bible Church of Romeo, friends, that the mission of the church is to be spirit-empowered witnesses for Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. And I'm hoping to show you that through this text this morning. This is our purpose. This is our collective communal commitment. Nothing more, nothing less. That word witness has fallen out of favor. It's kind of an old school word. Maybe I'm just getting a little old school as I get a little older. Maybe I'm just turning into a bit of a fuddy-duddy. I don't know. But the point is, we we don't like to talk about Christian witness. That makes people's hair stand up on their arm because we're scared of offense. We're scared of what that might mean. We're scared of relationship, relationships falling apart. And so we just don't like the word anymore. We don't hear preaching on the word much anymore. And yet it's all over our culture. If you go to my hometown in Akron and then drive up to Cleveland, there's still a massive multi-story banner with LeBron James looking up towards the heavens with his arms raised saying, we are all witnesses. We're all witnesses to something. We're all witnesses to someone. 
And this is what we will see in Luke's sequel book, the book of Acts, that the mission of the church is to be spirit-empowered witnesses for Jesus Christ. He shows us this in three sections. The ascension, we'll see here in verses 1 through 3, reminds us of what Jesus has done. The commission focuses us on what Jesus is doing. And then the second coming, his return, motivates us because of what Jesus will do. So let's walk through this together. First, the ascension reminds us of what Jesus has done. Look at the first verse. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. Again, the first book is a reference back to Luke's first volume that I already alluded to, the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a physician, a historian, a co-worker with the Apostle Paul. He took a careful, orderly look into the life of Jesus Christ and how his life, he made a very profound statement in Luke 24, how the life of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And he proves it through his writings. So he talks about his divine conception. He makes reference to his childhood. He talked about his baptism, his temptations, his miracles, his teachings. He talked about his trials, the crucifixion, his resurrection. It's an inspired biography of the words and works of Jesus. But I want you to notice what Luke says to introduce volume two, the book of Acts. He says, all that Jesus, interesting word here, began to do and teach. Why does he use the word began? He's getting after the idea that the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, focused on what Jesus did and taught up to the point of the ascension. Acts here, Act 2, is the story of what Jesus continues to do and teach. So Luke's Gospel, hear this, isn't the start and end of Jesus' work. It's just the beginning. That's a huge distinction for us to make. You might think, how can this be? He ascends. He's gone to be with the Father. He's now reigning in heaven. And that's all true. You might be thinking, well, the the gospel was his life and his work through his life up to the ascension. The book of Acts, that's really the work of the church and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. See, that's a differentiation we make that is completely unnecessary and certainly not in Luke's mind at all. In fact, he says the opposite. He says that right now his emphasis is that there is still work that Jesus is doing because he is the living Lord, seated at the right hand of the Father, working through his spirit as he leads his church. So you can think of it like this. The Gospel of Luke talks about the historical Jesus beginning his ministry on the earth. The letter of Acts talks about the glorified Jesus continuing his ministry on the earth through his spirit at work in the church. The ascension, then, is the event that makes the shift. It's it's where all this changes. It, It shifts, it hinges on this moment. Look at the rest of verse two. After, it says, he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Our translation makes it sound like this is a reference to all Jesus' commands. He had given commands through the Holy Spirit. The the original language is actually singular, and so it literally means having given commandment through the Spirit. 
Luke's point here is obvious. Here's his point. After everything he did, after everything he taught, do you think that this last commandment of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, would carry a special weight with it? Luke thinks, uh, thinks so. Luke wants us to think so as well. So he's about to give a command to his apostles, and this is his last command. But before we get to that command, let's go to verse 3. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So verses 3 through 5, they, they really go back in time and talk about what happened after the resurrection leading up to this day on the Mount of Olives when Jesus was ascended to heaven. And verse 3 is a statement to Theophilus here that the resurrection, he, he makes it clear, it's not a myth or a legend, it was a verifiable historical event. That's why he says he presented himself alive to them. So let's talk about this for a moment. Why did his appearing go on for 40 days? Why did Jesus, after he resurrected, appear to this group of people over a period of 40 days? Days. Do we know of other times in the scriptures when the number 40 is used? 40 days, Noah, 40 years, Israel in the desert, 40 days, Jesus in the wilderness. The number 40 in scripture is often associated with times of trial and hardship. Why would the 40 days be a time of trial and hardship from Jesus' resurrection to his ascension? Who was under hardship and trial during that time? His disciples. Think about it. This man, their leader, was alive. They spent every day with him. He's crucified. Now he's resurrected, but they don't see him all the time. They're waiting for this promise that he said would help them, but they don't have it yet. And so they're under trial in this season during these appearings. And so Jesus was not constantly with them, and they had not yet received this promised helper, the Holy Spirit. So the point is, if we are to fulfill our mission to be spirit-empowered witnesses of Christ, we must first understand what Luke was doing, that all of this was his talking of Jesus from birth to ascension. We need to know what Jesus did and what he taught up to his ascension. That is part of what it means to fulfill our mission. We must understand this. That's where it begins. It begins in history. These people really saw him. They spent time with him. They followed him, ate with him, listened to him, watched him. They watched him die. And all of them watched him resurrect or saw the resurrected body. Now, our faith is built on this history. It is real history. It's built on what Jesus was beginning to do and beginning to teach. Now, let's skip to the third point. I'm going to go back to the second to close, because that's really the bullseye, but let's, let's go to the third for a moment. The second coming motivates us because of what Jesus will do. This also helps us in our mission. This is central to our mission. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, do you think any of those who are standing there had ever seen Jesus surrounded by a cloud before? Anybody in here? You can speak back at this church. Remember, we worked on that. (laughs) So, yes, right? Yes. James, Peter, John, 
saw Jesus surrounded by a cloud on the Mount of Transfiguration. The exact same kind of idea. So they'd seen this before. And the last time, Matthew tells us, they were absolutely terrified and fell on their faces. Why were they so terrified? Well, they knew the Old Testament stories. They understood what the cloud represented. It represented the very presence of God. It was with Moses on Mount Sinai. It was with Israel after they left Egypt. It was with the tabernacle. And to enter into that space of divine holiness meant that if you entered into that space and you were not holy, then what would happen? You would not survive. And so they see Jesus surrounded by this holy divine cloud representing the presence of God. He's illuminated, glorified. And at this point, he's already been glorified. He's resurrected. But maybe the disciples are thinking this cloud will fade away and that Jesus will be left standing there with them just like the last time. But it didn't go the same as the last time. Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We must always let Scripture interpret Scripture. Two men in white robes were probably angels, and it's the exact same thing we find in Luke 24, Luke's first volume. Two angels suddenly appearing at the empty tomb in, guess what, shiny white clothes. (laughs) Same exact thing. Why does Luke tell us at the resurrection as well as the ascension that at both events there are two men, two angels, two uh, luminaries really that are there shining in all of this splendor? Well, Old Testament law, the, the law of God, the law given to his people required having two witnesses in order to establish credibility in the court. The point was, the resurrection happened, here's my witnesses. The point was, the ascension really happened, the physical Jesus ascended to be with the Father, here are my witnesses. These are real events in history. These things truly happened. So what do these angels do? Well, they do what Jesus so often did, they ask questions. So they say, verse 11, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven. Basically, they ask, what are you doing? Stop wasting time. We might be thinking, what's the urgency? Uh, Well, for me, that's certainly what I'd be thinking. If you've ever been to Israel, it's beautiful. It's just beautiful. Now, if Jesus somehow disappeared in the cloud of divinity up into the heavens, I'm probably going to gaze for a little while and see kind of what happens next, right? So, so I'm, I'm sure it was warm. It was probably a sunny day, like every day almost is in Israel. So why not hang out a bit? Well, it reminds us, the angels are reminding us that our time is much more precious than we might think. They're reminding us we don't have time to lose. We don't have time to waste. Stop standing around. For what purpose? We'll get to that in a minute. But we must pause here for a moment, and I must ask you, is your faith... Standing still. Are you waiting for something interesting to happen? I feel like I hear this all the time. That people are going through the Christian life and they're just like, my, my spiritual life just isn't really interesting. 
There's not much really happening. There's not much happening in my spiritual life. I don't see God at work that much in my life or the lives of people around me. It's not all that interesting to me. Let me remind all of us here this morning, friends, something interesting has already happened. That's the point. We just talked about it. We know as a fact in history what Jesus had done and what he taught. We know a virgin woman gave birth We know Roman soldiers drove metal spikes through Jesus' hands and feet and hung him on a cross until he died. We know three days later his tomb was empty and he shows up in the flesh for 40 days to over 500 people. We know he disappears in a cloud of God's glory. We're reading the story from people who were literally there. The point is something interesting has already happened. This is good news. This is interesting news. It's good news that most people don't really give any thought to. And maybe you're here today and you're like, I already know all this stuff. What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. The big deal is most of the people in our world, they don't give any thought to this type of news. You would think that somebody rising from the dead and floating away into the heavens and being born of a virgin, that's kind of unusual. But instead, people are thinking, you know what? That doesn't really interest me. I'd honestly rather find out which house the couple is going to buy at the end of House Centers International. I'd rather find out which girl is going to get booted off of The Bachelor and to see if I'm still going to be in the fantasy drawing with the other men or women in that whole field or whatever. They're probably more interested in, like, what's going to happen the next episode of This Is Us, and I wonder if I'm going to cry this time, too. They're, they're wondering, I wonder who posted a picture or a video on social media in the last 30 seconds. My, my point is, friends, there's nothing wrong with these things. I'm just saying that Jesus Christ disappearing in a thick cloud after hanging out with his friends for 40 days, after being murdered, that's news. That is news. That's interesting news. We don't need to wonder if there's more interesting, that like we're standing back like, God, would you just do something supernatural already? Like, would you just show up and do something like, so I have something to talk about because you've given me nothing to talk about. Friends, we have everything to talk about. We have interesting news, which makes for an interesting faith. Look at verse 11. This Jesus, it goes on to say, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the return is referred to as the second coming of Jesus. Now, does this mean we just need to play the DVD backwards and that's what it will be like? So just put that one in, rewind it, and how he left, that's how it'll come. Not really. Well, what's Luke after here then? Who is coming back? God in flesh is coming back. Not some new and improved version. There is no such thing. The exact same Jesus who has been glorified and given his perfected human body will return. And his point, the historian, in all of these facts is to say this will happen. Live in light of this event. So he says it will be in the same way. What does he mean by same way? It will be visible and it will be glorious. 
Visible and glorious. Luke 21, verse 27, Jesus actually says the exact same thing. He's teaching his disciples, and they say, or he says to them, just like the angels here say to the disciples, Jesus said, and then they will see the Son of Man, reference to himself, coming in a cloud with great power and glory. The second coming motivates us to do something in the meantime. We don't know when, this will happen. No one does. People pretend like they do. They've uh, destroyed families over dates and conspiracy theories and all the rest of it, but no one knows. But the angels reminded them, don't stand around waiting for something interesting to happen. Go and share about the interesting things that have already happened. He will return, and his return will not be for the same purposes of his first coming. He will return to reign, to rule, and to judge. So stop staring into the sky and get to work. The second coming motivates us because of what Jesus will do. It motivates us towards our mission. So finally to the question, what are we supposed to be doing in between Jesus going away and his coming again? And this is what I really wanted to get to today. Point two, the commission focuses us on what Jesus is doing. Look at verse four. And while staying... With them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Let me just unpack this a little bit for you. You're just going to have to hang with me for a couple minutes uh, so you can understand where this is going. This is then finally the last command that we talked about back in verse 2. And what's the command? Stay in Jerusalem. Now, everything in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the movement was always from Jesus towards Jerusalem. So now, why Jerusalem? Why stay in Jerusalem? Verse 5 helps us with this. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now listen carefully. The Old Testament promised a day where a great restoration, a great revival, a great salvation would begin and then spread out from its epicenter. And once that happens, that great revival and restoration will be accompanied by a gift. And where do you think they said it would start? Jerusalem. The prophet Joel, the prophet Isaiah, the prophet Ezekiel, they all talk about it. And so Jesus compares this day of God's salvation, this glorious revival, he compares it to the overwhelming sense they received in John's baptism, this spiritual awakening of sorts for the disciples. So verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now you know why they asked that question. Now you see where it came from. This isn't a bad question. They are asking, is this the great restoration that was spoken about, that was prophesied about? And Jesus responds, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. So now Jesus doesn't deny that one day there will be a restoration for Israel. He just doesn't give the time. Instead, he focuses on the sending of the Holy Spirit, which will inaugurate the kingdom of God, but it will not consummate it. Follow this. This is what I mean by that. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on people as they received the gospel, that is God's kingdom coming to the earth. His kingdom is now. And yet, 
One day, when Jesus returns at the second coming, he will actually bring the kingdom of the heavens to the earth where God will reign supreme. That is the kingdom consummated. So the kingdom is now, but not yet. It's now, but not fully finished, not fully consummated. And this is where we come in. This is where it all finally turns. Verse 8. We are left with the question, how will this restoration finally happen? How will, what needs to happen so that God will return through his son and finally set all things right? Verse 8 is the answer. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. And this is the whole point of Acts. The word is used 39 times. Acts 2, God raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Acts 3.15, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 22.15, you will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. The idea that Jesus is saying is you will, like a future promise fulfilled, witness about me. What does this mean? It means you are not witnessing when you are nice to your neighbors. It means you are not witnessing when you are serving the poor. It means you are not witnessing when you are posting a blog about your position on politics or abortion or marriage. Some of these are commands to Christians, and some of these things are great things, righteous things. They can even launch opportunities to witness through these things, but they in and of themselves are not witnessing. So your mission is simple. My mission is simple, to be a spirit-empowered witness to Jesus Christ, to share about what he did. He died for our sins, to share about what he taught, that forgiveness of sins is only found through him. And then he says, you're going to take this message about me and proclaim it to where? To Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We do not because we've read it so many times, we do not feel the impact of these words. Think about the disciples. Jesus says, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and they must be thinking, Jerusalem, you were crucified there. Judea, we were rejected there. Samaria, witness to those rejects? The ends of the earth, Gentiles, why in the world would we ever go to them? We'll die before we get through step one. This was socially and ethnically revolutionary. Point is, we have our groups too. Our Jerusalem, Judeas, some of whom are across our borders and some of whom are just down the street. All who need to hear a witness for Jesus. I read this recently. I found this fascinating. It's the most recent statistics that I've heard. There are are roughly 30,000 full-time Christian missionaries at work to reach 1.8 billion people who are divided among 12,000 distinct cultural groups that have no church in their language. Let me reverse it to let you feel the weight of it. There are 12,000 
people groups without a church in their language that represents 1.8 billion people and there are only 30,000 men and women reaching them. But how can we be passionate about reaching 1.8 billion people if we are not passionate about trying to reach the people on our street? The people on our kids' basketball teams, the people who work in the same building you do, the people, the men and the women who are on the same work site with you, the people of Romeo and Shelby and Washington and Ray and Armada and Macomb and Orion and Richmond and Oakland. So I want to ask you, is Jesus confused in his words Is there any ambiguity? I don't think there is. We are to be witnesses for Christ. So we think, well, this is too big. This is impossible. Or the number one thing I think most American evangelicals feel, and I know you've probably felt it many times, I'm afraid. Can I share with you I'm afraid too? that your fear to bear witness to Jesus Christ, I can feel that with you. I know what that is like. We all know what that is like as we try to live out this incredible commission. I have that same fear. And that's why we need to close with the first part of verse eight. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You and I have every necessary available to us, everything we need to accomplish the very mission we've been called to do. That's why we were given the Spirit. And we will not experience this power with our, in our spiritual lives uh, if we are not actually then committed to the very mission Jesus said he sent the Spirit to do. We will only experience this power when we are doing what, friends? Okay, 10 of you have it. It's the end of the sermon. (laughs) We will only experience the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we are involved in witnessing. It's really not a bad word. It's a biblical one. So I said, I want us to recapture it today. I want us to believe in this today. Because this is what we are called to do. Here's the, here's the deal. I, I remember once I was in Arizona. And I was hanging out with a bunch of soccer guys. And I've been working on these guys for years playing soccer with them. But to be quite frank with you, I feel that same fear at times. And sometimes I'm a little timid of bearing witness to Jesus. I do fine with extending hospitality. I do fine with serving other people. I love having people over to the house. I love encouraging them. I love doing all the things I can to serve them. But bearing witness... I get a little timid because I know that what that might mean relationally and the way our culture is set up and all the stuff. But in this occasion, one guy that was a good friend of mine came to me and he he asked me a question. He said, Steve, what do you believe about homosexual marriage? We started a discussion. It eventually bled into the gospel. And all of a sudden, all these men on this team are surrounding this conversation and listening in. In that moment... I can tell you, I had no fear. It had nothing to do with seminary education. It had nothing to do with Bible study. It had nothing to do with how much I knew. It was simply the Holy Spirit helped me in the moment, gave me the words necessary to clearly communicate the work of Jesus Christ to these men. And in that moment, I felt complete strength. 
I felt courage. I felt like the words were just smoothly coming. It was, it was right there. I don't feel that way when I teach at Bible study. I don't always feel that way when I preach. But in that moment, that's what I felt. And then when the moment passed and we got back to playing games, I kind of went back to timid Steve. What's the point? If your life doesn't seem that interesting in your faith, is it because you're not actually doing the very thing that the Spirit was given for? If we are not witnessing, we do not experience his power. That is why he was given. And so as we think about values and think about what is to come and think about all these things, we must always realize, friends, that the mission of the church is to be spirit-empowered witnesses for Jesus Christ. Let's not be ashamed of this. This is our calling. This is our mission. This is our purpose, to witness. And as we do this, I'm going to invite the band to come up now as we close. As we do this, let me just ask you, what do you think will happen in our neighborhoods and networks when we live out this commission? It's going to be really boring. Nothing's going to really happen. And man, my life will just be same old, same old, you know, show up, go through the motion. Don't you think there will be a little spiritual fruit? Don't you think that God is already at work saving human beings through the work of Jesus Christ? He's given us his spirit so that if we are committed to that very purpose of witnessing, then we will see transformation. We will see revival. We will see salvation. You will be part of people's stories that will go on for eternity. This is why we exist. This is why we're here. To bear witness. May God give us the courage to follow his spirit and do so. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this text. What an incredible text, Father. It reminds us of the work that you are continuing to do, Jesus. It wasn't like when you ascended to heaven, you said, okay, my work is done, and washed your hands of it. You are continuing to lead, continuing to reign, continuing to save through your spirit, through your church, and you have made us and given us a very clear mission. There's many great things we can do to follow your commands. We have one collective mission, to bear witness. Father, help us to know who needs to hear your truth in our lives. Help us in those moments not to be overwhelmed by fear, thinking we need more education and training and time and yet father we have constraints on this we don't just go out and blast people you tell us to do so with gentleness respect and love but as we are gentle with people respectful of people and loving towards people we still bear witness confidently so father i pray for my brothers and sisters i pray for this church i pray that we would see your salvation move, that it would go across this region, across these communities, across our neighborhoods, that we would see your spirit fall, that walls in people's lives would come down and that your spirit would enter as we bear witness for you. Help us to say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of mankind. I'm not ashamed. In Jesus' name. Amen.